0: Today we're in the second of a four-part series on hearing the voice of God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, as the Creed says it. And in our uh, understanding of God, how is it that this God speaks to us? Last week, Dan talked about Scripture, and that really lays the foundation for all four messages because that is where God has uh, so clearly communicated to us through his written word. Today, we're moving to the topic you see on the screen behind me, I think. Yes, indeed you do. And I saw it too. Uh, We're moving to this topic of discernment. Now, that might not seem to register as like a hearing the voice of God kind of topic. That's because there's at least two different ways we talk about discernment. We can think of discernment either narrowly or broadly. When we speak of discernment in a narrow sense, I mean in the sense of like, well, when I was without a job and I was interviewing with different companies, I would tell people I'm in a discernment process. Basically, that was a fancy way of saying, should I take this job or not, right? And it, it's a narrow sense. I'm focused on one decision, and once I get to the end of that decision, discernment's over, and now I'm in the job, right? And you all are you know, stuck with me. That's all right. Uh, good for all of us. But there is a broader sense of the word discernment that uh, we have in view when we're talking about it today. And that's the sense that Elizabeth uh, Libert describes in her book, The Way of Discernment, when she describes discernment as the process of intentionally becoming aware of how God is present, active, and calling us as individuals and communities so that we can respond with increasingly greater faithfulness. Now, I'm really, really grateful that I get two weeks to talk. This week, we're talking about discernment. Next week, we're going to talk about solitude. And, and there's a lot that needs to be said, even about this definition, that's going to have to wait for a week. The point I want to make to start off, though, is that you can see this is a lifelong kind of process. A process of in- intentionally and increasingly becoming aware that God is present, that God is here, that God is active. Another way to describe this broad sense of discernment is to talk about the way of wisdom. You, I, I just read a book on vacation. We got back yesterday, so I'm still feeling like, where's the beach and how soon do I get there? Um, maybe this afternoon. Why not? Um, oh, wait. I'm going to Queens tonight. Maybe not today. Hey, Queens, we're all going to the beach today. Yeah, so on vacation, I read this book on the book of Ecclesiastes, which was one of the Hebrew scripture uh, books on wisdom. Uh, and when you read through a book like that, I mean, Ecclesiastes is all about uh, an old man telling young people, here's what I learned, here's what I increasingly became aware of over the course of my life. And even after all of that life, there's still questions that the old person is asking. This is a lifelong process of becoming aware of how God is at work in and around us. Now, I asked Kevin to read a fairly long story today, but that story, I think, illustrates how Jesus develops this kind of discernment within his followers. Now, clearly, there are some unique elements to that story, right? Most notably, if you're not aware, if you're not familiar with that story that Kevin read, that's new to you, Perhaps the most notable feature of the setting of that story is when it happened. It happened on Easter. And not like Easter in the year 1385. I mean like Easter, Easter. Like that morning, Jesus rose from the dead. Later that day, this is what happened. That's a pretty significant difference from the situations we find ourselves in. But even though there are unique elements to the story, it is still illustrative for us. And where we find these two men at the beginning of the story is where we often find ourselves perplexed, confused. There are at least three different elements to their perplexity, three different dimensions of their confusion. The first, you might say, is an existential dimension. Verse 17 says that when Jesus approached them and asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. If you were to read this in another translation, you would see that it says, they looked sad. You know what that looks like. You know what that looks like when you see it on someone else's face. You know what it looks like when you see it in the mirror. We often think of discernment, this way of wisdom, as being this mental activity, like I need to know things, right? I need to read more books. And yet often, the window that God uses to open up this process of discernment is not so much our mind, but our heart. Not so much what we think, but what we feel. There is this existential component to our perplexity. Or to put it as simply as this verse does, we look sad. And as someone has wisely said, emotions are lousy leaders, but wonderful windows. They can be ways to look into what's going on below the surface. And here, Jesus opens a window into their hearts to begin unpacking their own perplexity. A couple of years ago, I went through my own season of depression. Depression. I didn't realize I was depressed. It took a loving wife saying to me, I think you might be depressed and you don't realize it, to which of course I said, No, I'm not. Which was sort of the point, right? And it wasn't until that, that that was a window. And once I was willing to open that window and look in, there were all of these other perplexities that were contributing to the way I felt. Now, I'm no psychologist or anything, so I'm not going to, like, go off on this, except in the general observation that anyone who's lived any life knows, our emotions can be a window in, and Jesus is opening this window up to say, look at your face in the mirror. Look at your own heart. Look at the perplexity. And let, let me bring you in further to places you might not want to go. So there's this existential dimension. But there's also, secondly, a circumstantial dimension to their perplexity. In verse 18, one of them, named Cleopas, responded to Jesus, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? The things that have happened. What's going on? So there's this existential component to our perplexity that, we kind of get lost in the labyrinth of our own mind, and right, our own emotion, and our own heart. But then there's this circumstantial dimension, and the two are related. Things are going on outside of us, and we're trying to figure it out, and that's contributing to our own internal perplexity. With this story, obviously, there are unique things that happen. Jesus asked them, what things happened here? And they say, well, things about Jesus of Nazareth." He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. I mean, those are unique events. They're not going to be repeated. And I'm not saying that the perplexities we face in our circumstances rise to the same level of the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet at the same time, there is something similar going on. It is all too human for us to look at our circumstances and to be befuddled by them. God, I don't understand what's happening. This is not going the way I thought it would. What you find throughout scriptures is that followers of God, followers of Jesus, often find themselves in the midst of incredible circumstantial perplexity. So in my Bible reading, I just came through 1 Samuel, right? Right? which tells the story of the end of King Saul's life and the beginning of David's reign. And here's David, the eighth son, forgotten off of the sheep. One day a prophet shows up and anoints him, like, you're going to be king. No, you are king. Oh, but we still have a king, Saul. And Saul's not all too thrilled that there's somebody else who is now named king. And so for about 15 chapters... Saul is chasing David around, trying to kill him. David did not ask for this. He did not present himself for this opportunity. He just was out, mind of the sheep. Dad says, come on in. I came in. I'm going to be what? And actually, many of the Psalms were written during that period of David's life. When he faced, incred- and you see it when you read these psalms, this combination of the existential perplexity with the circumstantial. Here's how I'm feeling, and here's what's going on, and God, what? But there's a third element. And this might be the most challenging for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Now, I don't assume that all of us are following Jesus. In a service like this, I, we, we here at Hope always assume that there are people who are just investigating and exploring like, what is it that you Christians believe? What is it that you think? And I, I, I'm glad that you're with us today if you're having those kinds of questions. And what I hope you hear today, even from this part of the sermon, is that Christians might like to talk a good game. We might like to sound like we're, we know all this stuff, like heaven, hell, God, Trinity. There you go, right? But, I mean, we are befuddled by life. This is where we are. And I hope what you hear from this is, here's how followers of Jesus try to work through the perplexity that befuddles all of us. And as I say, this third element, I think is unique to those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. Because the third element of the perplexity is a biblical perplexity. You see it in the very next verse, verse 21. These men go on in their description and say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Where did they get that idea from? They got it from the Hebrew Bible. They got it from promise after promise after promise in the Bible that Messiah, the Anointed One, that's what Messiah means, the Anointed One, not just a king like David, but the Messiah, the Anointed One, the real king, he would come and redeem Israel. So they looked at their circumstances, here's Jesus of Nazareth. And they looked at their Bible and they said, "Oh, oh, I get it. You're him. You're the one." They went and from that they concluded with confidence, let me say it this way. They they seeing that connection They had confidence in the scriptures, the Messiah will come, coupled with a confidence in their circumstances, Jesus, you, Jesus, you're the Messiah, that gave birth to a confidence existentially. We're going to commit ourselves to him. We're going to follow him because he's the real king. And that whole thing got dashed when the Romans crucified him. It all went up in smoke. And thus they're left with not only existential perplexity and circumstantial perplexity, but with biblical perplexity. And worse yet, as you see it in verse 21, their hopes were dashed. Do you hear the hopelessness? We had hope. For a while there, we had hope. And now that he's dead, the hope is gone. This is the perplexity that we who follow Jesus run up against in our lives. As I was thinking about this, I, I think you could put these three things in a Venn diagram where you've got like the Bible over here. Like we have Bible, we have our life, and we have our heart. Those three things. Or if you like alliteration, some, some people do. You have scripture, you have situations. And you have this sense of who you are and why you're here. You have these three things. And a lot of times, the best we can do is live in the overlap of two out of three. Like, man, you can have some really dynamic, quiet time with God, right? And feel really good about who he is, who you are. And then you look at your life and you're like, everything's just a mess. I don't know how, how this beautiful hour of my day relates to the other 23. But I'm just going to keep running to it and, and kind of escaping from the other 23 because this one hour is really good. Or you can see your life and the scriptures and see exactly how these things are supposed to go together. But man, like you're not lined up with what God wants to do here. Like, oh no, I don't like where this is going. Or things could be going great. I mean, you're like hitting on all cylinders and everything is just like firing and, and, and you're living the life you dreamed and, and God is like, ooh. Or there are times when we're just completely off the map. That's what these guys were. Like confused at every level. Now what is God saying to us? What does it have to do with discerning? Where is the hope in this passage? Well, it's obvious, right? The hope is that Jesus is present, right? I mean, Luke says it in verse 15. As they were talking and discussing these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. There he is. Jesus is present in our perplexity. That friends, is good news. And this is where discernment begins. Discernment, this way of wisdom, does not begin with us begging God, please be present in my life. It doesn't begin with, God, I wish you would show up. It begins with recognizing and acknowledging that he's already there, even if we don't sense him, even if we can't see him. Remember how Elizabeth Liebert puts it. It's, it's the process of becoming aware of how God is present. It's, it's not making God present. It's becoming aware to his presence. It begins with our recognition that Jesus is present. Or, if I could put it this way to go back to the Venn diagram, it's acknowledge that Jesus is the overlap. That he's in the middle of all of this. Where we can't get a handle on these three things, Jesus shows up right in the middle. He's the one who gave us the scriptures. He's the one who's ordering our circumstances. And he's the one who knows our heart. He is at that overlap. He, friends, is present. What is he doing there? What does he do from his presence, his here-ness with you? Well, first... He's changing the way we see our circumstances. Look at what he says. Verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? Wasn't it necessary? My application is saying, yes. What happened, what happened circumstantially necessarily had to happen. Now, again, this is a unique circumstance, but there is a broader principle throughout the scriptures that's exemplified here, and that is the way God orchestrates a circumstance is the way it has to be. It couldn't be another way. He has bigger purposes in mind, purposes to redeem the world. We can't see that. I think of the story of Ruth and Naomi. Remember this? Ruth, in the end, marries Boaz, who shows great kindness to her and her family. But the story begins with widowhood. With Ruth and Orpah and Naomi, mother-in-law, all losing their husbands. Poverty and widowhood. And the story ends, not just with the marriage of Boaz to Ruth, Certainly, she could have seen, wow, I, I can see how God orchestrated these circumstances to bring about goodness for me. But the story actually ends by saying that Ruth was the great-grandmother to David. I don't know about average lifespans in that time, but my hunch is she did not live to see David's birth and definitely did not live to see him anointed king. This is too many years. She couldn't see how God was doing what he was doing in her life to redeem the world. Because it would be through David that Jesus would come. What he is doing in us and for us is redemptive. The crazy thing in in our passage today, these two men thought that Jesus could not redeem Israel because he had died. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Dying is the way I'm going to redeem Israel. See, friends, he changes the way we see our circumstances. And for us, I'd put it this way. The circumstance that has you perplexed right now. The situation that you're in right now and you you just don't get why God is doing this, this particular situation God has you in is the way God is redeeming you. That sounds off the wall. Let me quote one of my favorite statements from Christian history, the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, which is a pretty long answer. The question is, what is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that I, as body and soul, and not my own, belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and has delivered me from all the power of the devil, so that apart from the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, but, this is the line, all things must be subservient to my salvation. What that say Everything that happens in my life works to the end that I will be rescued..
1: The thing that has you
0: just perplexed right now, God has you there for redemptive purposes. He is intending to heal and renew and redeem not only you, but others through you, just like with Ruth. Jesus is present to change the way we see our circumstances, but that's not all. He's also present to change the way we see the scriptures. Verse 27 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. I mean, it's one of those verses through which you need to read the rest of the Bible. Beginning at, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning at Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's Moses. And all the prophets, that's not just Isaiah to Malachi. In Hebrew Bible parlance, Joshua is a prophet. And Judges is a prophet. And Samuel and Kings, it's all prophets. The whole of the Old Testament, he's saying, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the whole of it speaks of Jesus. And Friends, this is where so much Bible study goes awry. Because you can spend your whole life studying the Bible and not see Jesus. This is where, like, things that happened, I, I can't speak to the events of the last 24 hours. When you go back to the, the California shooter and what happened there and, and the street, the guy wrote ostensibly claiming to be a follower of Jesus. You can, you can read and study the Bible and draw any conclusion you want out of it, honestly. You come up with all kinds of theories based on the Bible. But what Jesus is saying is if you read the Bible and you don't see me at the center of every bit of it, you haven't read the Bible. You've made it your own book, your own authoritative guide for you to do whatever it is you're going to justify. If you want to understand the scriptures, you have to see them pointing to Jesus. Jesus. They tell us about the life he lived. Every hero of the Bible, every hero of the Bible points to Jesus because every hero of the Bible was flawed. And you just keep reading these stories, even like the story of David. Like, I'm at a point where I'm like, I don't want to get to 2 Samuel 11 where he like, becomes guilty of adultery and then murder. Like, I don't want that because the story is so good right now. But friends, every one of them is flawed because it's not about David. It's about Jesus. It's like Minio says it in his song All your heroes are frauds, just like you. All my heroes are frauds, just like me. The Bible isn't about me or David, it's about Jesus. We've got to get to him. He is present to change the way we see the scriptures. And it's here that you start seeing how the Ven fills in because Jesus is orchestrating the circumstances of our lives to redeem us. And at the same time, he's given us the Bible as the perpetual testimony to who he is and what he's done for you. And of course, thirdly, he's present to change the way we see ourselves. At the beginning of the story, these two were sad and lonely. But look at them at the end of the story. When they finally realized Jesus was with them, they asked each other, verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us? Do you hear the existential sense of closeness to God in those words? Bible reading is not an academic exercise. It leads to hearts on fire when we hear the Spirit of God speak of the Word of God, Jesus. And then it moved their feet. They ran back to Jerusalem, verse 35, to tell the others. See, they saw themselves at first as downcast loners, and Jesus transformed the way they saw themselves and created confident witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. It's a certain kind of confidence when you recognize who is with you. You can go places you didn't think you could go when you know who's walking with you. So that's our problem, isn't it? I mean, Jesus isn't here. But I guarantee you, if Jesus were here in Matthew, you wouldn't be up there speaking, he would be up there speaking. Therefore, and it's the same, really, as it was for these two, because as soon as they realized who Jesus was, Jesus was come. But friends, even though he has ascended to our Father in heaven, he is still here, for he tells us in John 14, I will ask John 14, not Luke 24, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus, will come to you. What does he mean? He's not talking about the second coming. He's saying, when the Spirit of Jesus comes, Jesus has come. The Spirit can do what the incarnate Christ cannot do. He can go with us wherever we go. See, friends, Jesus is present because the Spirit of Jesus is present. Jesus is here because the Spirit of Jesus is here. He has come to you. Our problem is that we don't see it. We don't recognize it. And in some sense, we don't feel it. We want to live at the center of that then. We want to be in the middle there, figuring everything out. We want to be able to make sense of everything in the Bible. We want to make sense of everything going on in our own lives and everything we find in our heart. We're friends, that's not going to happen in this life. Becoming a follower of Jesus does not make the world pain free. In fact, in many ways, it makes it worse. Becoming a follower of Jesus does not solve all the questions we have. And even learning discernment, friends, will not guarantee success. That book on Ecclesiastes uh, I read last week has this great quote in there. David Gibson writes, the wisest thing you can do is to realize that not even being wise will tell you everything you want to know. I don't like that. (laughs) I want to stand outside of perplexity. God has put us within perplexity and perplexity. But we can't live there. And that's okay, friends. Because even though we might not be at the center of our own perplexities, we know who is. And we can trust him. Let's pray.